Hi, and welcome to Diaries of Social Data Research, a podcast where we take a deeper look into the research diaries of interdisciplinary collaborations. We're your hosts, Lucy Lee and Katie Keith. Welcome. Uh, We're very excited today to have our guest, Stevie Chancellor. Stevie is an assistant professor in computer science and engineering at the University of Minnesota. Her research focuses on human-centered machine learning for high-risk health behaviors in online communities. She received her PhD in human-centered computing at Georgia Tech, where she worked with Manman Dechondri. Afterwards, she completed a postdoc at Northwestern University. Uh, Welcome, Stevie. Hi, Katie and Lucy. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you about my paper. Yeah. Very excited to have you as well. Um, And the paper we're going to be talking about today is Discovering Alternative Treatments for Opioid Use Discovery Recovery in Social Media. So this Kai paper presents a large-scale study of Reddit posts mentioning alternative treatments for opioid use disorder, or OUD. Alternative treatments are clinically unverified but used in recovery efforts. There are two main parts to this paper. In the first part, the authors identify conversations in which OUD recovery is discussed using a combination of manual expert annotation and a transfer learning approach. In the second part, the authors identify specific alternative treatment drugs and their effectiveness by finding drug names whose word embeddings were closest to known substances used for OUD recovery. Their qualitative analyses showed that alternative treatments tend to have mixed effectiveness. Overall, this research is a step towards a better understanding of alternative treatments and OUD recovery and promotes further research into these substances. Um, Stevie, do you have anything else to add or? No, I think that's a great, a great summary of the paper. I'm happy to talk to you about how we came up with this crazy idea because a lot of people aren't familiar with uh, alternative therapies or opioid use disorder. Yeah, definitely tell us um, how, how this where this idea came from, like the beginnings of it. Yeah, so uh, broadly speaking, the work that I do focuses on high risk um, and what I would call dangerous behaviors related to mental illness. And so I study and historically studied things like pro eating disorder or disordered eating communities. Um, I have some research right now about suicide crisis, uh, self-injury and self-harm. And so the transition to opioid addiction or what is technically called opioid use disorder was kind of a natural uh, interest of mine given that opioid addiction is was and still is one of the more pressing health crises that we have in the US. Um, 11 million, over 11 million Americans misuse opioids, and the rates of death from opioid overdoses has actually eclipsed the number of people who die from car accidents, which for most adults is the most significant um, and most uh, likely way that you would actually uh, lose your life. So um, I was really interested in studying opioid addiction, but was trying to combine it with my interest in social media and how people were going to online communities in ways to find support for their um, addiction and recovery efforts. So that was the motivation for how we got started down this paper. I had no idea that we would end up with this really um, rich discovery and discussion of alternative therapies to support recovery. And that was kind of, that was a really cool thing that we ended up finding uh, working together with my collaborators. 
Great. Um, speaking of collaborators, uh, there's a whole bunch of co-authors on this paper. And so can you walk us through uh, sort of each of the co-authors and how they came onto the project, especially, especially we, we chose this paper because it has this interdisciplinary aspect to it. Right. So this paper is super cool in part because each of the collaborators and co-authors brings a really unique perspective. So I'll go down the list. There's me. Hi, I'm a computer scientist, uh, but I also have background and training in media studies and new media from my media studies background. And so for me, social media has been one of the uh, my favorite platforms to study because of how richly and like with such depth people go on to discuss life experiences ranging from having a baby, dealing with addiction, grief and loss and all of these things that people go into social media to talk about. Uh, George Nitzberg is a practicing uh, clinical psychologist and addiction uh, researcher. He, uh, at the time, is based out of Columbia University and has historically done research in two areas, uh, schizophrenia, and opioid addiction and substance abuse. Um, and we met through my advisor, Moon Moon who is the final author on this paper. Moon Moon is also a computer scientist and is interested and has historically been interested in how people discuss uh, life transitions and uh, mental illness on social media data. She adopts a lot of these same approaches that I do, including machine learning, big data, and computational social science approaches to solving these problems. Um, and I'm very indebted to her uh, as both a fantastic advisor and the kind of supervising author on this piece. So that's three of the authors. Two more authors who I think are actually really cool. Andrea, who is, um, was at the time an undergrad master's BSMS student at Georgia Tech who had been working with me for many years. She was one of my uh, first and longest running research assistants. Um, and she's been across several projects with me. And so it was really exciting to bring her in. And then Francisco Zamperi uh, was an undergraduate researcher who was interested in doing his undergraduate honors thesis with me. Um, he had approached Moon about studying social media, and he actually was working as an emergency medical technician or an EMT. He would drive and work on ambulances, and he was really excited about this idea about studying opioid addiction. And so I started working with him primarily on pitching this project because I was curious in getting into the space. Francisco was excited and eager, and Moon had recently introduced me to George. And so it was kind of this nice convolution, just mix of people who were really excited about the same problem. We're like, okay, we really want to study opioid addiction and opioid use disorder in social media. What are we gonna go find? So I started looking at Reddit and Francisco pointed out to me that he noticed all of this weird stuff that people were talking about on Reddit that was unfamiliar to him. Things like Kratom, Iboga. Kratom is a, a tea from Southeast Asia that can at high enough uh, dosages be used as a mild sedative and opioid. Iboga is a similar kind of substance that can also produce a similar kind of relaxative and sedative effects. And he kept seeing these and George, the clinical collaborator on a call was like, hey, I've heard of this stuff before, but like, I don't know anything about it. Like nobody really writes about these substances in the uh, clinical literature. And if there is clinical evidence for them at all, what, we don't have much outside of some case studies, some toxicology reports from, um, ER overdose reports. What is social media going to tell us about there? And so that's how this collaboration, I think, sort of 
grew naturally from the people that I knew. And also the research idea just grew in kind, in kind of the conversations we had about the interesting and kind of uh, novel behaviors we were seeing appear in the social media data, specifically on Reddit. So I'm like, no, that's very fascinating. Very fascinating. Um, just like stepping back a couple steps. Do you know how Moonman and George got connected in the first place? Um, they're at different institutions. How did, how did that collaboration form? I believe that they met at a workshop at some point. And Francisco reached out to Moon Moon and Moon Moon was like, Stevie is looking for an undergraduate to work with. And I had been working with Andrea for several years or a couple of years at this point. So it, it was a really a good opportunity when you find good people who are enjoyable to work with to kind of test an idea out and see if the collaboration works. Um, one of the challenging parts of interdisciplinary collaboration is are like these is that people, it's hard to know when the team is going to work both on a, a collective level about the topic that you wanna study as well as on a personal level. And so both of these are really important in making these kinds of papers successful. And so this was an awesome opportunity to test this collaboration with Moon Moon and George. And they had been talking about doing research for a little while. And then I was able to bring on Andrea and Francisco and complement all of our skills together in this group that was working towards this kind of shared goal of, what is social media talking about with these, uh, with people who are struggling with opioid addiction and trying to recover? And what's going on here that's bigger than just, wow, people are talking about recovery and opioid addiction on social media. We, <laughs> we kind of know that already. And I didn't want to sort of repeat that kind of process. And so the collaboration was really important in, in identifying the topic area as well as uh, facilitating like this really, really cool group effort. Cool. So at a meta level, how do you how do you think about the right ingredients for a successful team and collaboration? Oh, this is such a good question, because if I could answer this, I would write a book that would probably be marketed to business professionals. And I'd make a lot of money consulting, telling people how to make great teams. Um, so there's a couple things that I think about when I think about building collaborations and shared experiences with people across different disciplines and also with different incentives, right? People in industry might have different incentives for the kinds of things they'd wanna produce than people in academia because academia, my scholarly collateral or my scholarly caliber is rated in publications and the venues in which I published in. Um, so a couple of things I do in trying to make for good collaborations. One is making sure that I like the people that I work with first. And so having some time to get to know people before we dive straight into a large scale project, really important for me in testing the waters because uh, projects like this, this one was actually a, a faster turnaround um, in that it only took us, let's see, 12 or 14 months from start to submit the paper. Um, but the challenge is that if you jump into a grant or some kind of longer term project, I want to make sure I like working with people for two, three, four years. And so testing the waters and do I like spending an hour or two of time with this person was really, really important. But there's also, I think, a, a complementary um, 
wavelength that uh, different kinds of collaborators uh, can get on. And having shared vocabulary and um, problem solving tech or techniques as well as shared contributions. And that alignment is hard to put your finger on, but as you kind of jam and brainstorm on ideas becomes more obvious. So the best and most successful clinical collaborators that I've worked with, and I have a lot of clinical collaborators I've worked with at this point, ranging from folks like George, who's an active and practicing psychologist to people who sit in like the academic side of a medical school, um, we all have shared interests. We're like, wow, social media is a place where people go to talk about mental health. This is a valuable research area. And their clinical and um, medical expertise is something that I'm missing. And my technical and sort of social media online communities skills are something that they're missing. And so there's an opportunity for us to proverbially scratch each other's backs um, and provide things that neither of us could do by themselves. And so for me, this is more than just the sum of their parts. What kind of interesting questions, contributions, and methods can we come up with with the shared understanding that makes our work that much more um, collaborative? So I guess the summary is try it out on small projects first. See if you like people because you have to, you're going to probably commit to working with them for at least a year and um, find people that share similar, though not identical or complementary. Um, framings and perspectives and ways of knowing and thinking about research problems. So in the paper, the addiction research scientist, who George, um, yep. he seemed pretty crucial in defining things like the initial sample of subreddits to look at, manual annotation from an expert. Could you tell us a little bit more about how his expertise um, what became necessary and apparent in the paper? I could not have done this paper without George because I don't know anything about, okay, I know a whole lot more about opioid use disorder now and substance abuse than I did before I started, but he was really integral in all pieces of this project. And I'm so happy we had him on from the start. So he was able to help us identify and be able to distinguish between different kinds of substances that he knew about through his practice and treatment, but also in identifying and nuancing the difference between recovery with kind of the intention to recover and using substances for the intention of use and recre recreational use and what we would, most medical professionals would call abuse. Um, and that's a really fine line to walk when people are talking about using the same substances like prescription opioids as a tool for recovery, rather than as something that they abuse as a recreational thing they do on the weekends. That kind of nuance, even in clinical practice, is difficult to suss out, unless you know somebody and you understand kind of, oh, they're using this on the weekend, it's a party drug, versus something that they become dependent on because it makes their lives better, or they're using it as a way to substitute in for harm reduction purposes. So that was one really salient example of how George came in and really clarified the transfer learning classifier. And these people are really not talking about the substance in the way you think they are. Let's iterate on this over and over until we can actually have the classifier nuance out what recovery means, rather than just relying on, eh, people are talking about using these substances. We think they're kind of related. Uh, we'll go with that. He also was instrumental in the rating of posts um, to make sure that we were able to get those kinds of 
uh, nuanced discussions out. And so he would work with us at the end of every transfer learning kind of iteration cycle when I was satisfied with the performance and the kind of things that I was seeing. And then he would run through 50 posts with me and be like, Stevie, try again. And I appreciate that frankness and that forthrightness in getting the, the concept of opioid use disorder recovery and using this special group of substances that are unconventional in clinical treatment, uh, correct. And without him, I wouldn't have been able to get that done. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned earlier about working with undergrads and I know plenty of PhD students and postdocs have mentored undergrads in research. So can you tell us a little bit more about student mentoring and like how you approached it for this paper? Yeah, that's a really great question. So when I think about student mentoring, whether it's at the undergraduate or master's or PhD level, the thing that I think, and it's really important to me to bring students in where what they do matters, but it is at a level that they can succeed at. So it would be unfair for me to try and ask a freshman to code out the full ML system and the transfer learning architecture. It's not gonna happen. And that's not because they're not smart enough. It's just that they haven't yet had training in core programming fundamentals. They probably haven't taken an ML or an NLP class. And they may not have had an internship yet where they may have seen packages that we commonly use in machine learning or statistical machine learning for Python, like Pandas or SKLearn, they probably haven't had exposure to that. And so that's a task that I would ask, say, an older um, undergraduate or master's student to do for me. Now, that doesn't mean that that freshman can't contribute to this project, right? They're able to go on and do things like look at Reddit read posts, give me a sense of what's going on in the community, help identify possible strategies to get a full-blown data set of all possible conversations about recreational and illicit drug use on the communities. That's something that an undergrad who may not have had that much exposure to the topic area can definitely help and support. They can also help think through data collection. So data collection, super important part of every architecture or every paper that I do. Um, getting data takes a really long time and so does cleaning it. And it's one of the least fun but most essential parts of most social media data sets um, and social media projects. They can do that because I have scripts already available for them to grab 60 some odd subreddits and they just have to figure out how to launch it, babysit it, and then clean it. That experience seems kind of like grunt work, but it's really, really important for us to have that be done well. And so I can trust them to do that, even if it takes a little extra time as they learn the ropes. And so for Andrea and Francisco, so Francisco was a senior and so was more technically capable uh, than a freshman. And so I could give him activities and other, not activities, but like things to do during the process that I would not have been able to trust with other people. And Francisco did a lot of work in the curation and annotation of the data, um, the subreddits that we ended up using. And he actually had a complementary analysis that we did using LDA. Um, about topic modeling for the substances that we were trying to uh, suss out that didn't end up making it into this paper because of length reasons. Um, and he did that analysis all by himself. And so it was really awesome to see him grow throughout the process, but also to trust him with doing things that I knew that he could do 
but would be outside of his comfort zone of what he had learned within his classes. And Andrea, I mentored the same way of, she was, had been working with me for several years and had built machine learning classifiers. And so I could trust her with different kinds of pieces of the puzzle to pull the paper together. Fascinating. With, with this large of a group, and Stevie, you're somewhat of the central node. <laughs> How did you actually structure meetings and communications and making sure that all these pieces are coming together, but that everybody's on the same page and has the same vision of this paper? Um, how did you see your role in that process? And, and what are the actual mechanisms you use to ensure a successful collaboration? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, it's something I've focused on more explicitly since graduating from my PhD as I'm now moving to mentoring not only undergrads and master's students, but also working with PhD students where they're gonna be committed to working with me for four to six years. Um, for this project, there's a lot of email threads and a lot of Gmail notifications and calendar pieces. Um, for uh, infrastructure, I would say, or let's, uh, let me talk about a little bit about like meetings and like managing those. I would try and set up weekly meetings with Francisco and Andrea as a pair, given that we were working on Francisco's undergraduate thesis at the same time we were doing this. And then keeping a running biweekly meeting with all of the collaborators together. Sometimes Moonwood would come in, sometimes she would not being able to keep people up based on what was needed and also giving people foresight into the next couple of steps where I might call on them to actually do labor. So in the example that I mentioned earlier about the transfer learning um, adjustment phase, that was one of the finickiest parts of this project was fiddling with and getting that transfer learning classifier right. I warned George that this would probably take what I thought at the time like four passes. It ended up taking us closer to six or seven, but he knew that what that meant is every couple of days while I was retraining the classifier and adjusting our features and playing with um, the algorithms that we were using, I would send him a batch of posts and he would get back to me about what was wrong with those. I would then go back and incorporate them, but he knew that that was coming because I had told him about that. And so that communication of kind of what's going to happen in the next two weeks or four weeks was really helpful in keeping everybody on track. And then there were also, we built in specific milestones that would uh, ensure that pieces of the paper would just kind of, or the pieces of the project would be executed. So Francisco's thesis being due in April was actually really convenient and having a rough draft of the paper that we started then converting to write the Kai paper, which we then submitted in September. Granted, there was a lot of work that I did over the summer to support getting this paper ready to go. And I had to base, I do, we added the transfer learning classifier as a piece of that over the summer. Uh, but the infrastructure there was such that I had a rough draft to start working with in April, which meant that there was a lot less time I had to spend on, say, writing the introduction, finding all the related work, because Francisco had done that already. And so I, in some cases, that kind of uh, mandatory deadline of a paper or a class project may not be built into the project. I think people should build that more explicitly in throughout projects. So at the beginning of projects, I try and write now one to two page short summaries of where I think the project's going, get some related work in, pitch some initial research questions. Later, I keep iterating on and working on that and sharing it with the team as both a way for us to reflect on what we're doing 
and make sure everybody's heads in the same space, but also to make my life easier when I get to writing papers, because there is nothing worse than finishing a whole elaborate project. It's got all these pieces that are moving underneath you and there is a blank page and you need to write it up. And by the way, the deadline's in two and a half weeks. That's scary to me and I don't like working under those conditions. And so the incremental writing approach for me is one of those like, project manager-y kind of things. My mom told me I really should do like clean your room every day for five minutes, like write every day for 30 minutes, but now I'm doing it and I get it. It works. It totally works. Cool. I'm, I'm curious, did you work on anything else while you were working on this project? And if so, like how is that context switching process for you? Like how do you, what do you, what are you juggling while you're working on this paper? Oh, that's really good question um I think at the time this was my it would have been okay hang on I'm backtracking to 2018 which was when the bulk of this research would have been done over the summer I did not have an internship that summer which was the only way this would have been a summer project that I independently worked on that summer and I was starting to work on my dissertation research. And so I was beginning the process of the, I, I did a systematic lit review as like the, the main contribution of my dissertation given the empirical work I had done before was pretty well established. And so most of the time I was working on the systematic literature review and finding papers and refining the uh, search process for that. And so, I was toggling between two different projects that worked two different parts of my brain. And so I didn't feel like it was burdensome to switch between them. Now, that being said, the other things that I, I like working on multiple projects at the same time. I know some people don't because it's cognitively demanding to have multiple things going. For me, I like having, you know, right now, I, I'm not going to tell you how many projects I have right now. It's a little absurd, um, but <laughs> I would not recommend that. But I like to think of like my productivity and my brain is kind of like a model of burners on a stove. And there's a limit of how much time I can think about each project based on the amount of fuel or like cognitive effort that I have in a given day. But sometimes more projects will be more active than others. And I need to turn the burner up to make sure that it gets done. Or I can move the pans around on the stove, depending on how important it is for me to say, reach a deadline to submit to the CHI conference or for my dissertation research. Well, this is probably going to take me six or eight months. If I don't intensely work on this for two weeks and I pick it up like for half an hour every day, okay, that's fine because I know that it'll still be there at the end of September once this paper is submitted and I'm bored of uh, social media and Reddit research and I wanna do something different. So for this particular paper, how did you decide on the publication venue and um, were there any other places you were considering submitting to that you did not? That's a good question. So this paper had very, and I'll, let me tell the story backwards. So this paper had really strong reviews uh, during the CHI review process. And this was the first place we had submitted it to. So I'm grateful it got in on the first pass. But one of the reviewers was like, why did you not submit this to a medical informatics journal? Because there's some really strong medical implications in the paper that we really wanted to highlight. And the place we had initially thought of 
we thought of submitting this to uh, medical informatics journals, which if you're in computer science and you don't know, medical informatics crosses between computer science, HCI, and health research. So anything from apps to studying social media, uh, looking at deployment studies, uh, specifically focused around health. If it's health and computer science, it probably fits into medical informatics in some form or fashion. And we considered submitting it there. But I felt that there were really interesting contributions to make to HCI and the way it conceptualizes sticky problems like people using social media to find and source drugs, but the intentions are positive. And I felt strongly that at the time that the paper would speak to both a medical informatics and health audience, as well as the HCI space. Kai was the first deadline that we had coming up once I had finished up the project over the summer. And we were like, all right, let's try to submit for Kai. If it doesn't go well, we can submit to another more medical informatics journal or health informatics. It happened to get in despite the reviewer who was like, this is a health paper you should have submitted this to a health journal. It's really important and really cool. That doesn't, it wasn't a dig on the paper to be clear. Um, but I still stand behind this paper as like a, HCI does a really good job at dealing with thorny problems in social media and in, in people's use of technology. And I want these kinds of papers that have health implications to be seen by and incorporated into the computer science vernacular as models of how to do work in, in complex spaces. And so there's both a, a fit to the venue and also a little bit of me hoping that papers like this that have these cross-disciplinary collaborations and also impact um, multiple domains influences different areas. And so I chose Kai because I wanted it to speak to that audience. And I actually am happy with how the Kai community has taken this paper. Following that thread, uh, uh, you noted in the ethics section that these findings are not necessarily clinically valid. Um, so did you have conversations with your co-authors, especially George, about what would the leap look like from your findings in this paper to something that does have more clinical impact? Or is there future work in trying to build off of this? Um, what do you think needs to be done to make that leap to the clinical side? Yeah, so I think our caveat with a lot of the papers is that we don't go in and ask people who are struggling about their substance use and whether or not they use these substances. And so we don't have what you would consider kind of gold standard evidence or ground truth that this is exactly the way that people use all these substances. And so in that way, making clinical recommendations off of these kinds of papers is tricky because I just don't have that next stage of causal or correlational evidence. And so for me, in expanding the reach of this paper, one of the things George and I had talked about was trying to interview people from these communities about their actual practices of substance use, as well as trying to find people in um, who are actively inpatient with him or with other uh, clinicians that may have heard about this. So you get kind of both the people who are inpatient versus the people who may not be, and you get this multi-faceted uh, uh, perspective on the clinical questions. But I, I think that there is a, 
a necessary reservation in using social media data that has to be said, and it's irresponsible if it's not said, especially when dealing with thorny topics like health. So social media is one perspective out of many of a person's multifaceted, complex, and in some ways contradictory experiences with their health. And this may not reflect the whole picture. And so I caution against deriving things with the causal level statements of Kratom is used for opioid use recovery only and it's really bad because people of complex, contradictory and evolving ways that uh, Kratom is a substance that they want to engage with, but also about how they relate to their own illness journeys. And so using one source of social, like social media, as the ground truth for such big claims to me is bombastic, maybe a little, and I don't want to get on irresponsible. I don't think sometimes we're incentivized to make big claims in our papers, but I, I want to be respectful of the communities and the people whose data I study. And so I shy away a little bit from the clinical implications, even if I think they're, they're kind of low hanging fruit dangling right now, very tempting to pick up as a, as future work. Along with that, that point about mixed methods, um, you know, the, the focus of this podcast is on social data um, and the emphasis on data and especially computational social science, in, in my personal opinion, sometimes places a premium on the quantitative. So as someone like yourself who has done mixed methods and some qualitative research, how do you actually balance this quantitative versus qualitative? And what advice do you have for other researchers who want to pursue more mixed methods work? Yeah, I think mixed methods work when done well is some of the most powerful and dangerous work that you can have in a good way. Um, but it is some of the trickiest to execute because in a 10 page page limit for a CS conference like Kai, you are going to have to make compromises of what gets stuck into methods and results sections and how you justify your whole approach. And one of the methods, whether it's the qual or the quant method will get shortchanged. So it's really difficult to execute it within a single paper. So one of the things I tell people is if they wanna do mixed methods, one, be willing to write multiple papers on uh, a single subject. I like to think of my projects, you know, flowing together almost like a snow globe where I shake the snow globe and on one side I can see the quantitative side and I use Reddit data and machine learning and word embeddings to study online communities. But from this have come up some really interesting findings that the only way I'll be able to validate them is through interviews. And so I shake the snow globe again, and then all of a sudden there's the interview study, as well as possibly like a design study where we talk to people about what Reddit could do for them to help them feel better or to seek their goals or find others who are going through similar circumstances better. And then you shake it and then there's a system study. And then maybe you shake it again and there's another quantitative study. Um, and I don't see these as contradictory, especially when you have collaborators who can support your interest in doing work in ways that are rigorous for the areas you move into. So I haven't done any interview studies yet. And part of that is because I'm trying to find the right collaborator to do an interview and execute the interviews very well. I would never, I, I like to have a little humility in assuming that I can't just figure it out by reading a textbook about how to do it. And I want to work with somebody who does this for their bread and butter. Just like people come to me to talk about large scale social media analysis, machine learning for 
social media data, hard problems, dealing with that. And so working with them on a longer scale, how can we do this method really richly and robustly, while also respecting the fact that we have incentive mechanisms that can constrain us, unfortunately, with page limits and conference submissions, um, working within those to make contributions across kind of like a larger research arc and narrative is really important to me in, in doing good mixed methods work. And sometimes it's okay, I wanna be clear, like sometimes people say like, if you do mixed methods, people will get confused about who you are and what you do. And I like, I don't fundamentally agree with that. I think that uh, computer science is really coming around to this idea of having somebody who can explore a problem really, really well and knows everything about it more than just being the person with a hammer, whether that hammer is optimization or, uh, you know, being able to optimize BERT or design methods or participatory design. Like it's coming around to this idea of somebody who can actually take a topic that's complicated and hard and explore it from the start to the finish, whether that be technically relevant pieces of optimization, testing efficiency, and getting a real data set to test it on, that kind of process of uh, theoretically building design deploy, or in my case, often it's this qual quant trade-off of interviews and design versus the big scale quantitative studies. Um, I don't think you need to shy away from doing mixed methods work, but if you're trying to get a job in academia, it can be helpful to be the person who's really good at one and is good and friendly and likes to work on the others. So side advice for trying to find academic jobs. It's hard to be a jack of all trades because you will get labeled as a master of none, but that's easier once you're a professor because then you can be a master of many. Yeah, and you talk about page limits and I think earlier you mentioned that there was an LDA component at some point, but you didn't, it didn't yeah. end up getting included. So I'm curious, like, how do you decide what ends up in the 10 pages when you, when you put out this paper? I hate page limits so much. I'm, Kai has finally moved away from page limits. Um, they now have a page limit or page guidelines somewhere between I think eight and 12 pages. And they say that the longer paper should have bigger contributions. And it is possible if we wrote this paper in 2020 for the 2021 submission deadline, which is when they introduced this flexibility with page limits, we would have included the LDA. Um, my goal in writing any paper is that I want there to be a one sentence takeaway on the whole thing. Everything that goes into that paper should contribute to that one sentence. And that one sentence needs to be crystal clear because I want the readers to understand why we made the decisions we did, what our analysis goes to support that and how the discussion that we frame builds on and provides new opportunities for future work. If it doesn't fit in that one sentence summary, then it will get cut, which is not my favorite practice because I hate cutting good work that does support it. In this case, the LDA was supporting the larger narrative about opioid use disorder and the way that alternative therapies were used. It replicated many of the results that we found in the word embeddings analysis. And so we picked the word embeddings analysis because it was a stronger and more explicit um, result section. And so the LDA was diminished and eventually cut from the paper because it repeated many of the things that 
it had shown with the, we had shown with the word embeddings. Um, I will just say it's really hard to cut from papers, especially like people joke that you should like kill your darlings when you're writing papers, but this is less like not even killing my darlings. These are like killing things I worked on for months and then it's never gotten published since then. And that's not because it's not publication worthy. It's just, you know, priorities shift. Francisco graduates, uh, does really well because he's killing it in industry. Same thing with Andrea. And now we're um, evaluating what to do next. And could I publish the LDA in a smaller venue separate from this? Yeah, but I probably won't. And that's, that's also an effort thing. Writing papers takes a lot of time. That's kind of unsatisfying when you start thinking about what to cut and who to kill in your paper. Um, taking a step back, uh, this paper clearly focuses on Reddit and social media data. And in the paper, you acknowledge that self-selection is one of the major limitations of this social media data set. So how do you think at a meta level of these trade-offs of the various kinds of social data sources? For instance, uh, participants who are you're surveying may self-censor in a way that they won't on social media, but in social media, they can be unrepresentative and potentially performative. Yeah. I, I think this ties into some of the concerns I had earlier about making sure that the claims that I make are appropriate for the data set and its uh, capabilities and characteristics. So, I can't claim clinical validity from this data set because I don't actually have somebody sitting in front of me who I can talk to about their substance use. That being said, recognizing the limitations is in many ways one of the most important ways to find the strength of the work itself. And so Yes, Reddit data is not representative. Most people are many, the demographic factors on Reddit probably biased towards white men in the US. Um, and that actually reflects some interesting trends we know about with opioid use disorder and that uh, men are more likely to be afflicted than women. But that means that we probably will have less experiences of women who are struggling with opioid use disorder and the ways that they may conceal or use alternative therapies as a way for recovery. And that stigma and um, other factors would, would definitely play into their experiences Then we may not have that data here. And so this gets kind of back into the idea of doing mixed methods as sort of plugging the holes of where the gaps of social media data uh, leave us. Uh, so, if I were going back to this paper and wanted to like kind of robustly fill some of the holes caused by Reddit data, I would probably try to do surveys or recruit a more representative sample from clinical populations. Now, the downside of that is that people who are going to a clinic probably aren't looking for alternative therapies because they have a Suboxone or a methadone prescription that they're able to receive from a provider who's actively caring for them. And so we may have this underreporting, not because you know they're not willing to be honest with us, but because they may not actually just look for these alternative therapies in the first place. And so it's kind of a, a, a chicken and egg problem based on where you start. So if you start in one area, you may need to plug holes and then there's more holes that you'll need to deal with with the methods and getting comprehensive overviews of subjects, whether it be opioid use disorder, hate speech detection, other mental health conditions, stuff like that, 
having that mixed method approach and having those collaborators who can point out where these things are happening is like the only way that I know to deal with that. And to at least lean in and acknowledge that it's happening, right? Our data sets are never perfect and that's okay. Cool. So are there takeaways that you learned from doing this project that you hope to carry out in your future projects after this or that you did end up carrying out because this project was in 2019 when it got published. So we're a few years out now. One of the things I like the most about this paper is the framing of the discussion section and how it handles complex and stigmatized health conditions on social media. I thought we did a really, really good job talking about the challenges with intervention design when you believe that somebody may be struggling with something like opioid use disorder and how to design for and think about intervention and design in HCI when dealing with these big problems. So let me, let me get a little more concrete than that. In this case, at the end of HCI papers, we love to pitch design implications. Love it, it's like a thing that if you don't have it in a Kai paper, the reviewers are like, where is it? We want to know how this will actually impact product. And so we started spitballing these ideas as a group. And George pointed out, he's like, a lot of these don't actually, well, one, a lot of these are focused on Reddit as the platform. And two, you're kind of skipping the step from recovery as a necessary like process of behaviors that slowly shift down people's intensity of their use to this, like, how can we stop people from using these substances in the first place? And that was a mistake that we, that I made initially in this project. And by reframing the intervention design around harm reduction, which is a concept drawn from public policy and the clinical psychology research, we were able to take those design implications, which initially had gotten in the, how can we make Reddit a better platform? to how can we do things for people that support them where they're at? And the idea of supporting somebody where they're at is something that I've carried from this paper into future work. So dealing with dangerous mental illnesses and well, not dangerous mental health behaviors, let me be precise there, um, like suicide crisis. How can we meet someone where they're at? We're not gonna stop them from feeling bad for the rest of their life, but we might be able to move them three steps backwards from the place where they're thinking of injuring themselves. That is a win. And I think that we diminish and we don't actually incentivize the moving a little bit to get people to change some of their behavior and this harm reduction model of, all right, if you're using heroin and fentanyl, that's probably dangerous and you risk overdosing. Is there another substance you would feel comfortable using instead of heroin and fentanyl? That's harm reduction. That's a design implication. How could we help people find alternative therapies that might de-escalate their dangerous behaviors? Or how might we meet them where they're at in terms of if they can even make those decisions? And that meeting people where they're at has carried with me in the suicide crisis work I've been working on with the CDC recently, in some eating disorder research that I've been doing about designing AI systems for interventions, and how would you design nudges and interventions for people? If you actually could take the algorithms that I build, use it to detect when people are using these substances, what's next? Well, the thing that has to be next is you meet the where they're at. 
That's a fantastic takeaway from for so many of us, I think, of um, working with real humans and real social data. So uh, really appreciate that, Stevie. Um, we're about out of time here. So is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't covered so far? I don't think so. I. I really like this paper and how much it packs into 10 pages. It was one of those papers that I reread and I'm like, how did I actually get this much into the whole body of the paper? Um, and I will say like one of the ways that I, I think that uh, that can be done is with great collaborators who are willing to call you when you're making a mistake um, and editing and working with the paper as this larger thing that contributes that single sentence of contribution. Um, and then using that to help you trim it back and make the make the discussion, make the results, make the methods all the more clear. That's my big takeaway from doing papers like this. So good collaborators, be willing to kill your darlings. Sometimes it really hurts though. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Stevie. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I hope that this was helpful and helps people build more collaborative relationships and be able to execute work that makes kind of a, bigger splashes in your area.